So, um, so uh, today is question and answer Sunday, and so uh, I'll have Scott kind of give the playing rules of this, and uh, then kind of after that, I'll pray and we'll get underway. So you can share whatever people need to do, whatever they need to know about. All right, so if you have any questions, you're welcome to text to that number right there, or the ushers have uh, cards that they'll hand out that you can write and they'll hand in. Matt has seen none of the questions. He has not briefed at all. So um, let the... Uh... Let the competition begin. Um, you only need to text your question to me once, by the way. <laughs> I have seen it. All right. And all caps. All caps. Does not does mean not he hears it better. If you all do right. tape a $20 bill to the 305 card, it will get read. Yes. So. I think we've had that happen before. Cash started coming in, huh? Not that I remember. Oh, I thought there was a time. No, I'm all over it. Maybe no. that was something else. I don't know. So, Go to the Scott Thompson yeah. Pizza Fund. Oh, and also, too, I was talking to somebody. They're like, well, I have a question, but I don't know how to word it. It's really long. It has to be tweet worthy, right? Like if you get a like you get a question that's like, wow, this is chapter one, you know, like that's not gonna, it's not that's gonna true. happen. So that's right, true. right. Is there all anything right. else? Are you ready? No. We're, oh, we got I, lots. I'm gonna pray, so oh, we're all ready. We, we probably should. I've seen these questions. I might. I could lose my job by the end of this. All right. So let's all pray. All right. So let's go ahead and pray it up. Jesus, we thank you for today. We thank you for the opportunity to have some fun to be lighthearted, but we also know that there's going to be questions that are asked with people uh, that they are very serious questions for them, and there's they're things they're pondering, they're curious about, uh, maybe they're hurt by, I don't know what it is, uh, and, and so I pray that you would just do uh, just an awesome work this Sunday, that Holy Spirit, you would do the speaking, uh, get me out of the way on this, just really because it's, I'm not interested to be in the way, uh, I want you to get all the credit, Jesus, and so we just pray that today would be fun, it would be helpful, be informative, uh, and in the in the big idea is that you get the credit. So we look to you for that, and we just love you and thank you in your awesome name. Amen. Amen. All right. Matt, is there such a thing as the greatest sin? Oh, good question. So, yes, there is such a thing. In fact, um, Jesus talks about it a couple of different times in the Gospels. I mean, well, they're in different Gospels. He has one occasion of it. The question is, can we engage in the greatest sin? I'm going to maybe put it that way. Um, so there's a scene in Matthew chapter 12 where Jesus has just cast out uh, all these demons, right? And uh, the religious punks that they are, the Pharisees, roll in. Always looking for something to criticize, right? Like the awesome role of the Pharisee is find something good and turn it into something bad. So Jesus rolls in, casts out demons. That's something good. They turn it into something bad. And they say, well, Jesus only casts out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. And so uh, they basically say that Jesus casts out demons by Satan. That's their conclusion. And so Jesus says, well, man, if you've watched me at work, you've watched the Holy Spirit at work, casting out demons and you think it's satan then you are so blinded and far gone you've just engaged in the unforgivable sin you have concluded that the acts of god are the acts of satan you've inverted everything and there's no redemption for that for one basic reason and that's because you flipped god and satan you're 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 blaming god as though he does satanic things and so it's not so much that they can't be forgiven if they repent. His point is, you're never going to ask for repentance because you flip the whole game, right? So in that sense, it's unforgivable because you don't even know up from down anymore. Um, and so that was the unforgivable sin. Jesus calls it blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. He says you've blasphemed him because you've decided that his work is demonic work. Um, and so that was the scene in, in, in Jesus' ministry there in, in Matthew 12 where that goes down. So from that, what is the unforgivable sin, right? What is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? It's when you conclude that the works of the Holy Spirit are satanic works. 
right? Which, again, if you flip the game, yeah, up and down or inverted, of course you're, you're never seeking redemption because you're going to go the wrong way for that redemption anyway. So the question is, can that happen today? Can somebody blaspheme the Holy Spirit? Uh, I, I would say that that had a context way more for the situation with Jesus than it does for us today. Um, and so at that level, no, it's not something we can commit today. It was something they committed just by simply taking the works of the Spirit and saying that's satanic. That's bad, all right? That's just a bad move right there. So that's the unforgivable sin. Thank you. No, thank you. The New Testament church took the Lord's Supper whenever they came together. Why doesn't Redemption Church do the same? <sighs> because we want to. We want to bring it back every week, and we just haven't done it yet. All right, so um, oh, that felt good. All right, so... No, I, you know, part of it is like when the church came together, they would do it like in every setting. So in our church, you can do it at regroups, you can do it on Sunday mornings, that kind of thing. Uh, it, it's that they did it. Here's, here's a good little rule of thumb. There's some things in the Bible that are descriptive, but not prescriptive, all right? Um, and so just because it describes that they did something, if it doesn't wrap around and say, and you do this too, then that's something that is described, but it isn't something that's always prescribed, and we have to do it that way, right? So what we know is that the early church, they did it all the time, but it doesn't say, and you do it all the time. Because, um, again, that would be like every time like three of us together are like, all right, well, get out your little cup and your little bread. You know, like we don't necessarily do that way. We can kind of choose how to do it. What we've done, we used to do it every week as a church. Now we go, have gone to once a month. But we try to slow it down for that once a month. Like before when we do it, it was pretty quick on a Sunday morning. You know, it would be a part of the overall service. Where now what we do is as soon as the service starts, we're, we're talking about it. We're praying about it. We're preparing for it when it comes. It's very thoughtful, slowed down, contemplative, that kind of deal. So that's the heart behind it. Uh, in the future, we might bring it back weekly. Who knows? Uh, but right now, we try to just, again, slow down, uh, hold it as a precious thing. I mean, we're Protestants, right? We've only got like two sacraments. If we're Catholics, like, hey, we got seven. We got all kinds of opportunities. We're Protestants. We get two. So we got baptism and communion. So we really try to honor communion in the way we're doing it once a month now. Why is Jesus considered part of David's line when Joseph wasn't actually his father? The lineage doesn't mention Mary. Uh, no, I'm kidding. Um, no, because, you know, part of it is like in, in their culture, they didn't like, you know, I think we understand if anybody's ever adopted children, um, families that adopt kids do not see their adopted kids as anything other than their kids. Right? They, they, don't, they don't go like, oh, well, this is our adopted child. This, this child isn't connected to the family lineage in the same way. Right? It's like you automatically ingrain them into the lineage of your family name and family heritage because they're now your child. Right? Uh, and that was the exact same culture of Jesus' day. Right? So uh, when, when Jesus comes into this family, he is connected uh, certainly by blood and birth through Mary. Uh, but Joseph is his adoptive dad, but you still consider it the lineage because that's the nature of how family was understood in their culture. Adopted was still family. That's still your lineage. Now, technically, his lineage comes through both Mary and Joseph. It exists at both levels, um, but that adoptive spirit um, still puts him a part of that line. So it's one and the same for them. They don't, they don't see adoption as something less than family, less than connected to lineage. That is, in essence, your blood legally. Um, and so that's the spirit behind that. Uh, does God love the 49ers? And if yes, how? <laughs> you can cheer all you want. You're not going to like this answer. All right. Um, 
So, does God love the 40? He loves all sinners, so that's... <laughs> How? Grace. All right? So, I mean, yeah, come on, you know. I mean, he even put up with Judas for a long time, I, you know. All right, so you're like, too far, Matt, too far. Um, yeah, no, no. Now, Steelers, no, they're just reprobate, all right? So, they're out. All right. Uh, Tom Brady, oh, never mind. I'll stop. I'll get in trouble for that. Let me All save right. you right now, man. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. What would Jesus think about capitalism? What would Jesus think about capitalism? Oh, man. Where's the target when I need it? All right. So, um, no, I, I, I think Jesus sees all systems the same way. It doesn't matter if it's capitalism or communism. In fact, it, it was interesting. Uh, I, th- I think I've shared the story before, but uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn was, was in the Soviet military, ended up uh, being in prison for a number of years for just basically making a slur against Stalin, and uh, ended up coming out of the, the, the gulag in the Soviet Union, eventually travels to the United States and speaking at a forum he says, I cannot conclude which is more sinister, communism or capitalism. And his point was that both are idols that men bank their security in. Um, and both uh, basically enslave in the end if you let them become your security. Uh, and so both are, well, prosperity will save humanity. Socialism will save humanity. Um, Money will rescue me. The state will rescue me. He says the problem is still fundamentally the same. We're trusting in the things of this world to bring us happiness, security, peace, contentment, joy, and they always enslave. And he says, I look at the United States and I see people just as enslaved in the United States as I see in the Soviet Union. They're just enslaved differently. Right? Some are enslaved to their greed and some are enslaved to laziness because they think the state is just going to do it for them. They're all enslaved. And so I, I, I think you know, when Jesus said, hey, or you know, if we said, what is Jesus' opinion? Jesus' opinion would be really, really simple. He'd say, uh, don't store up on earth where rust, rust and moth will destroy and thieves will break in and steal. Store up in heaven. Bypass this as a real deep conviction. Here, it doesn't matter which system. All the systems are the same. All the systems are opportunity for idols if we're not cautious. Uh, and I think that's what Jesus would say. He wouldn't defend one system over another. I don't, uh, over another. I, I think he would just kind of warn that any security in any system is going to let you down. And we, we shouldn't put our security in stock in any systems in this world anyway, because it's short term, right? Heaven's the big idea. Um, and so that's where Jesus would land, you know? Where was Jesus the three days between the crucifixion and the resurrection? Uh, I don't know. Um, no, I don't know. I don't know. Nobody really knows. You know, I mean, like, there's a little bit of stuff, like in in, in Peter, where he talks about um, somehow Jesus going and speaking to the spirits imprisoned, and somebody's like, "Well, what was he doing, speaking to the spirits imprisoned?" I don't know. You know, like, like I don't know the details of that. Like the old uh, Apostles' Creed says he descended into hell three days later rose. The Bible doesn't say that. Bible doesn't say that. The Apostles' Creed says that. The Bible doesn't say that. Uh, we don't have enough specifics on what's going on. Basically, I'd say on Saturday, right? We don't know what's really happening on Saturday. The Bible is not specific on what's happening on Saturday. Uh, we don't know what spirits he speaks to in prison. Are those demonic spirits? Are those unbelieving people's spirits? I don't, I don't know. That, that's what we know. He spoke to, to spirits imprisoned. That's all we know. Um, 
There was no other details. There's plenty of books written uh, of opinion on that, and none of it is rooted in any kind of factual detail uh, or, or kind of biblical evidence. So we just kind of go, spoke to the spirits in prison. That's all I know. What do you think about middle school dating? I say you give your children a loaded weapon, too. Um, you know, so that's, that's what I say about middle school dating. All right. I'm like, really? I mean, like, honestly, I, I don't even know what that is. Hey, you want to go out? Sure. I'll talk to my mom. Um, <laughs> slap you on the handlebars of my bike, and we're going to a stopper, honey. You know, I, I don't know what middle school dating is exactly, except dangerous. Uh, that's the only thing I know. Uh, what they want to do is figure out a way to get away from parents and play spin the bottle in somebody's basement. That's what they want to figure out. So I, I do not endorse <laughs> middle school dating. Um, like Adele, I'm like, and again, I, what I want to be cautious about is I'm not here to be a legalist. There's no Bible verse. You know, this is a little bit like, it's just Proverbs, man. It's just wise. You know, it's not... It's not like there's this rule that you should say it's sinful for them to date, it's wrong for them to date. I think it's just silly and crazy for them to date. Uh, and so uh, I, I would say we're better off to not create those kinds of emotions at that age bracket because it's just way too much seriousness way too quickly. Um, and, and especially nowadays, man, you start hanging out, watching what goes on with junior high. What used to be a high school thing is now a junior high thing. What used to be a high school thing is actually becoming like a sixth grade thing. Uh, and so everything is heightened, you know what I mean? And, and to kind of take a brief, serious turn for just a second, um, you know, the, the difference between, uh, and I'm not trying to put it all on a junior high boy because I'm not, it's just I can use this as an example. Uh, what a junior high boy has access to today to inform him of sexuality is very different than what I had as a junior high boy. Right, so when all the, the 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 numbers we see says the average boy has seen hardcore porn at nine or ten, by the time he's eleven, twelve, and thirteen, he is he is very informed in a very dangerous way, right? And increasingly, even young women, they're being told, "Here's the standard. Here's what you do. Here's what's acceptable." You know, they grew up on on Hannah Montana, and now she's on a wrecking ball, and you know what I mean, like. And they're like, oh, well, I want to be like Hannah Montana. How do I twerk? You know, and so, um, so you just bolt those together in a basement with a bottle, you know, you spin that and it's just Russian roulette. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think the more we kind of discourage that, the better off we are, frankly. So, and I know all of God's junior high parents said, yeah, yeah, yeah I know, I know, I got it. All right. So I feel you. All right, so, yeah. Mm -hmm. How do we reconcile historical accounts of other supposed messiahs who lived, died, and resurrected around the same time as Jesus' original ministry? That is an excellent question, because this is, I had this, I've had this a couple of different times recently, and part of this, uh, there was a, a video floating around the internet a couple of years ago called The Zeitgeist, um, and, and it was like this documentary saying, here's why Christianity is wrong and broken, there's all of these traditions of a son of God coming to a virgin, living, dying, rising again, and, and that's the whole premise of the movie. I think within a year, that movie was voted as the worst, most ill-informed documentary ever made. Um, in other words, you watch this documentary, and if you're not kind of um, critical of, of, of a documentary like that, you'll be like, oh yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point too. That's an excellent point, you know? Not even asking the question of like, hey, they had like elephants with wings flying in that, you know, like not that, like, 
do elephants really fly? You know, like, you should ask the question, is that real? Does that have a footnote? Does that have any historical evidence behind that statement? Because the reality of that film, and the idea that there were many virgin births, son of God, died, rose stories, there's really not. I mean, archaeologically speaking, historically speaking, from a scholarly perspective, there's not a bunch of those stories floating around the time of Jesus. There's just not. Um, that is not the most widespread thing. There's certainly ideas that uh, the gods came. You think about like Greek mythology, for example. The gods came, procreated with women, had these half-deity like Hercules and those kinds of things. But none of it was rooted in uh, a benevolent god who graciously comes, who takes on the form of a complete servant, sacrifices himself to the point of death for the sins of others, dies and then rises again. All of that narrative never seen never explored, right? That is what makes the Christian story so so unique. So when people say there's a lot of kind of Messiah mythology uh, around the first century, not according to the, the legitimate history of it, not according to the archaeological studies of it, it's really kind of like somebody said it and everyone went, oh, that must be true. You know what I mean? Like like flying elephants. Um, so again, letting letting... Letting scholarship do its job, even secular scholarship. I don't have a problem with that. Secular scholarship says the same thing. Oh, those are just, I don't know where we got that. We don't have the evidence. We can't footnote that. So there's no footnotes to some of that, that, that story right there. So the Jesus story is very, very unique at many, many levels uh, because of those things. So, Is Redemption Church looking for a permanent church space? If you've got one, we'll take it. Um, so, yeah, no, I mean... It, I guess it depends on, on looking. There's like lightly looking, there's aggressively looking, there's, there's you know, those kinds of things. We, we are, what we know is, you know what, I mean, we are blessed to be meeting in a public high school. I mean, that is awesome. We have a great relationship with the school. We love being in the city, loving on the city this way. Uh, we also know that traditionally churches and schools don't end up having like, you know, they're there 10 years later. You know what I mean? Typically there is kind of a shelf life to these relationships, not because anybody gets upset at anybody else or anything else. It's just over the course of time, school districts change, things happen, whatever else. So, so we really do have to look down the road and say, yeah, what is the future for redemption? What is that going to be? Uh, and so we've just in the last two months put together a group of three elders, myself, um, Steve Rutherford and Keith McKinney. To start looking at the options. So we've been talking to people in town. We've uh, And Reese Denterton is also really a part of this. So we've started a relationship with the city to say, hey, we're city development going. Uh, here, Redemption is looking for something maybe of this kind of size or caliber. Uh, so we're talking about some of that. We're getting some of the details on what are available properties in the valley, what would maybe work for us. So right now is all the homework stage of that. Uh, but that's what we're looking at right now. Um, what we've, for the most part, really landed on is saying we are laboring really hard for redemption to stay here in Duval and in the Valley, right? Uh, obviously, Duval is a small community, so your options are, are more narrow in that. But we're really trying to look at that, pray about that, and understand that. So I, I have no doubt that probably here in 2014, you're going to hear a lot more about that. Now, what we're trying to do in that, you know, we, when we started, we said, hey, we're a church without walls, right? That's us. Here's what we're trying to do. In time, redemption may, in fact, have walls, and we're going to figure out a way to do walls to keep the pressure on that we still have the heart of being without walls, right? So we want to really work hard to, to, to pray about, think through, and see something develop that maintains that spirit. So it isn't like, hey, we got a building, quick, bar it, close us in. 
wall out the city. We don't want to do that. Uh, we want something that very much invites the city in, even if we have space. We want it to be a city space, not just merely a redemption church space. So that's a lot of what we're kind of thinking about, praying about as we look at our options. So, um, you know, do, do I think in the next five to ten years, redemption is realistically going to need a space and will have a space? I really do believe that. Um, how that's going to come about, hey man, I'd be praying about that. We're figuring that out as we go too. Because the options are are limited at this point, so we're we're just looking at raw property versus existing spaces and how that would work and fit. So I think this year you'll hear a lot more about that though, because we'll know more uh, throughout the the first half of 2014. So, mm-hmm. is getting involved in discussions on Facebook that are argumentative the same as idle words described in Timothy as something not to engage in? <laughs> it's going to be fun. All right, so. Um, I should just say yes and walk away. All right, so, um, no, no, here, here's, here's my thing. And we all know this at every level. Uh, you will say something in a text you wouldn't say to somebody's face. You will say something on Facebook you wouldn't say to somebody's face. You will say it in such a way that you would never say it to their face. Um, I, I, Scott and I will talk about this a lot. We, we get to spend a lot of time breaking up people's Facebook fights in a weird sort of way, or we get to coach people that are like, I'm so mad at them, you know what they said on Facebook? I'm like, yeah, we all saw, it was awesome, um, <laughs> right? Like, like, it, it, and, and, you know, because what it is, is, you know, you say something maybe hyperbolic, and then other people feel like they have to weigh in, and you can't sense tone, right? I mean, that, that, that's the worst thing, like, if you're really mad at somebody, and you want to really wreck their day, send them an email, right? Because they don't know your tone, and if you're just bitey, it's even worse, and then you, you can completely implode a person's day with, with written information. Uh, in fact, it's interesting. It's, for me, even, it's why I've gone to a medium where if somebody sends me a question on, on just email or whatever that's kind of complicated or whatever else, I send them a voice response now. I don't send them a written response. I'm now recording a voice response so they can hear my tone because tone plays such a huge role. So now you've got Facebook, and can't read tone people try to make it short enough that everybody reads it it typically has a bar but there's some difference and i just don't see the good that comes out of that i don't know if anybody have you ever had somebody write something on facebook that you would disagree with and then you read it and you go whoa that really changed my opinion you know what i mean wow i get it now what an illumination you don't like no typically you're like what an idiot and you start writing your response Right? Like nobody gets one to arguments on Facebook. Uh, anybody. I, I don't know of anybody that's like, oh, I was swayed. You know? Um, so I just don't think it is, it is a helpful or fruitful uh, method of, of communicating when it's a difficult topic or a, a hyperbolic topic or a divisive topic. You know, if it's as simple as, here's a picture of my quiche. Um, <laughs> don't get me wrong, I do make fun of you. Um, <laughs> but. I'm not in any way bothered by you. I just tease you. All right, so um, now you're like, great. I'm unfriending Matt today. Um, <laughs> he can't be my friend on Facebook. So anyway, my, my, my thing is it, it probably could be idle words. It certainly is uh, not typically helpful words or fruitful words. Um, I find them more to hurt people's feelings. It's amazing how many people I deal with who get their feelings hurt on Facebook, right? Truly. Um, and so I, I think, you know, if we want to love the people that are our friends on Facebook, I think we're good to use it in very docile ways, you know, encouragements, pictures of your kids, love that. Um, you know, your quiche doesn't hurt anybody, you know, uh, maybe makes us a little hungry, that's it. Um, 
but I think the other things, not good. Venting on Facebook, bad. Don't vent on Facebook. Um, don't rant on Facebook. Don't, I don't think that's healthy. It really isn't. It just discourages more than encourages. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you the other part. It's, it's funny. I, I got to be careful with this because I'm not, I'm not making a blanket statement. I'm just making a big statement. Um, like that? Wordsmithing. All right. So um, it, it, it's the other part. It's not about what you write on Facebook, but it's that whole thing of why are you writing on Facebook, right? Or why are you having any public voice? And, and if you go, I write something on Facebook, and then at the end of the day, I'm discouraged because nobody liked what I wrote, right? Then maybe that's even something to kind of think through, pray about a little bit. Like, oh, okay, well, maybe I'm wanting a validation, and I'm trying to get it here. Uh, what were they saying? Like, a number of people are depressed on Facebook because nobody likes their stuff, <laughs> you know? Like, like, honestly, they get on Facebook at the end of the day, like, who liked my, nobody liked my stuff, you know? And then they're depressed. I actually, you know, I've even had people that were mad at me, like, they were mad at me. I'm like, why are you mad at me? Because you don't like my stuff on Facebook. I like you, though. <laughs> I don't understand. I, I, do so and now I feel obligated. I better like everybody's stuff on Facebook, even the quiche. All right. So, um, <laughs> uh, yeah. So, I, 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 Facebook's a blessing curse. And I think the more we learn how to use it as a blessing and less as a curse, the better off we're all going to be. So, for sure. There. End of rant. All right. Um, if you feel you're losing your faith, what can you do to strengthen it? That's a great question. That is a great question. I, I, I wish I had some wonderful pat answer for that. Um, I don't. Um, I, I've been there, so I, I totally get it. Like, I don't, I'm not, you know, that's why I can't give you the pat answer. I, I, I've been in the place um, where I'm like, yeah, it's all Jesus and Bible. Woo! the gates of hell! To, uh, whatever. It's all just morals and, you know, and I, I just, you get to that point. Um, I, I think there's a number of things when our faith is sort of drying up that we can do. I think part of it, uh, I, this is what I love about David. David is the most honest prayer dude on the planet, right? He's the dude that will just roll in and be like, God, I'm mad, I'm angry, kill them all, right? Um, I do think it's okay to yell at God. I think it's okay to say, God, I'm not sensing it. I don't feel it. I feel lost. I feel dry. What happened? Um, you know, David had some R-rated prayers, man, R-rated prayers. I've had some R-rated prayers. Um, and so, you know, I think there's, there is value when you're dry to, to doing that. Um, I also think what's important is when you get dry to not, uh, become, uh, absent of self-discipline. Like some people, when they get dry, they also become sluggish spiritually, i.e. they start sinning more. <laughs> you know what I mean? So they start making bad decisions and those bad decisions accelerate your dryness. Right? They, they, they create you, to, or they, they establish a spiritual numbness in you. And so, in the end, when you do finally come back around, because I do believe that those whom the Spirit resides in come back around, um, I think it, it comes back again, but you may do a lot of battle damage in that time. So, my big encouragement is when you're feeling dry, keep doing what you should do. That's no different than anything else. It's like when you don't like your job, right? Uh, you still keep doing your job. Uh, that's the why. Instead of like, I'm just going to sit in the bake room for eight hours and see what they do. Uh, you, you don't want to do that. You want to keep doing your job, but you want to get to that place where you're internally healthy again as you do your job. I think it's the same thing spiritually. Keep doing what you're supposed to do, but you also just pour out your heart to God. Say, I don't sense it. I don't feel it. Here's another one. What typically happens when we get spiritually dry is we also become very self-centered. It's remarkable how self-centered we, I'm not happy, I'm not fulfilled, my marriage isn't this, my spouse isn't that, my kids always, me, my, I, right? 
Um, the best thing you can do when you're dry, start investing into others. Invest into others, especially others in greater need than you. Um, that can also really help spiritually, you know. Don't look at yourself too much. Start looking at others, and that can really bring you back. There's something powerful about making just a personal investment in the lives of others that, that reminds, you, reminds you of what God has done for you, especially when people are hurting or in need. So my thing would be start making those investments. If David and Samson were to fight, who would win? Samson. End of story. Oh, my gosh. That dude could kill you with a jawbone, please. Yeah. Blind Samson or, or sighted Samson? Oh, it doesn't matter. Blind sight doesn't matter. Yeah. I mean, he has like, like sonar. He's stud. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I added that, but that's okay. I've seen, I've seen that Bible story on TV. You can do some stuff like that. It's all right. So, um, trying to spice it up. Yeah. So does the Bible speak in any way to the morality of transsexuality? Yeah. In a weird place. Um, I'm going to say it's a weird place. So in Matthew 19, um, not, it's the closest parallel I can get. Um, well, actually, in a couple of places, also 1 Corinthians 6. So that just clicked into. Um, so, uh, you know, Jesus is dealing with the scene about marriage and that kind of thing. And then he talks about uh, some who were born eunuchs, some who were made eunuchs, and, and, and that kind of thing. So now you have uh, some that are born with sort of this indiscriminate gender, right? Um, and, and then some who, whose gender has been transformed by man, right? They've been castrated or whatever else. Um, but in that whole context, he still has it in the context of it's a, they're male. They function in the male capacity in those venues. Um, you also have in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he talks about those who are effeminate, right? Paul writes about those who are effeminate. Uh, and his word there is those who are effeminate need to function and act in their proper gender persuasion, which is male, right? So in that sense, you know, we go, there's, you know, this is a new phenomenon. This is a new challenge for culture or whatever. Uh, the Bible is always really clear, right? That God made men and God made women and men are to function as men and women are to function as women. Now, uh, in that, certainly there are a lot of different ways that men function as men. I, I'm going to use the male one because that's a little bit easier for me because I'm one. Um, so... I start speaking for the feminine race, and I get emails, so I'm going to go with just the male side. Um, so, uh, and this is even important for a church like Redemption, right, where we have, like, shootouts and man things and beef jerky, all right? So, um, that, that, that's not all men, right? And we don't want to start saying, okay, well, here's, here's what a man is, right? A man has facial hair, only eats red meat. Um, I know, I know it's a man. I, I'm with you. My kind of man, bro. All right, so, but there's a lot of variation of what makes a man a man, all right? And we don't want to make it sound like now machismo is the only thing that's male, right? Um, there, there's a lot of bandwidth in what that is, but it's still being distinctly male, right? Uh, and, and so in that sense, what the Bible would affirm is God's made them male, he's made them female, they function in those roles. There's some diversity in how those roles function. What they're not supposed to do is a dude's not supposed to become a chick and a chick's not supposed to become a dude. We're not trying to act like one another so much that we lose our own distinctiveness in the way that we were designed, right? So God loves the, um, the uh, complement of male and female, not the competition or the inversion, right? He loves the complement of male and female. So that is what we want to maintain and, and that kind of thing. So does the Bible speak to it? Yeah, speaks to it, I think, quite a bit in that sense. And that's the thing to be maintained there. Mm-hmm. Now, that isn't to get into the emotional stuff of, well, what if somebody is, is curious, confused? All that, that That's a much broader question than I'm glad wasn't asked, um, right? 
because it is. And, and I mean, it, I, I'm not, well, I'm going to slightly answer it. Um, we want to show love and grace and care for anybody that is in, in, any kind of like, I, I, don't, I can't figure myself out. That, that's the, the Christian life should be to come alongside others in care and love and that too. So I don't want to divorce that from this. It's to say, yeah, does God have a design? Yes. Uh, are we to be mean, cruel, callous, cold, indifferent? To, no, no. We should come alongside in love for sure. So that, that's an important key in there too. If God is forgiving and loving, why does he send people to hell? Um, man, that, I'll give two answers to that. Uh, one is, uh, we did a series called Satan's Sermons, I don't know, maybe back in uh, mid to late summer. And there's one message just on that topic that will service you much well than the answer I'm about to give because this is a, tw- a tweet answer in comparison to, I think, an hour and six minutes <laughs> message that day. Um, so that will service you well to go back on our website and watch that video. With that said, here's the thing about... Uh, a loving God that sends people to hell if he's a loving God. Um, the, the reality is there, there's two parts to, to the issue of hell. One is that, yes, God sends people to hell. The other is people choose hell over God. Uh, because in this life, the people that are asking the question, they typically don't want God, so they, they want to blame God, right? Uh, well, if you're loving, why won't you take me even though, ready? Even though I don't want you. That's really what we're talking about. We're talking about people that are saying, I don't want God. So the question is, why would you want him in death if you didn't want him in life? Right? You wouldn't want him in life. You, you kind of look at this guy and go, it's too many rules, too many regulations, I have doubts, I'm not sure. So in death, you get what you wanted in life. You get no God. You didn't want God. You're not going to want him more once you get there. You're going to see him more clearly. The things that you don't like about God now, you will triply not like about God then. You know, what people sometimes don't like about God, they don't like his purity, they don't like his standards, they don't like his rules, they don't like his expectations, they don't like the fact that he wants to be first and wants to be worshipped, and so um, all the more they're going to die and they're going to see all of that perfectly and clearly, and all the more they're not going to want it because they didn't want it here, you know? So in that sense, as the reformers would say, there is a choosing of hell too. I prefer hell over God, right? Now part of it is our architecture of hell, it's, oh, it's, it's, Fire and flames and ACDCs playing in the band. And, you know, like, um, you know, that's not, that's not hell. I love the way C.S. Lewis captures hell. Um, the, the thing that makes hell hell is that you get whatever you want. Whatever you wanted in this life, you get an absolute measure in hell. The problem is you can't, you don't have anything to do it with. In other words, God made everything, so you have none of God's stuff. All you have is like a blank void in all of your appetites and no way to live out your appetites. No way. There's nothing there for you to live out your appetites. Imagine like just, uh, here's a good one. You know what insomnia feels like? Amp that up. You just lay there. You have nothing to do. Your mind's racing, but you have nothing to do. That's hell, right? Because you have none of God's stuff to do it with. It's God's dirt. It's God's metal. It's God's periodic table. He doesn't let you have that in hell. It's just you. In kind of the void, right? Um, that's why when the Bible gives these descriptors of flame and gnashing of teeth and outer darkness, these are all sort of these illustrative descriptors of general madness. You know, when we talk about, oh man, it's just burning me up inside. Um, I, just, I just feel so like lost in the dark. I mean, we use these descriptors when we describe our deepest agony and pain and confusion and loneliness. Hell. 
but you would prefer that over God who is holy and righteous and good, that kind of thing. So um, that, that's why. The other part of this is that we forget that God offers the solution. He, he says the solution is really simple. I send my son into the world because I love the world so much I want to save the world from itself, right? And Jesus comes and he lives sinless, perfect, holy as God, dies on a cross for our sins, right? Dies on the cross for our offenses, for all of my... Because, man, I'm riddled with sin. I'm, I'm a pastor and I'm riddled with sin. I still have problems. I get snippy and angry and frustrated and I get selfish and I get greedy and I get all those things. Those are all me. Jesus has to die for all of my crap and stupidity, right? And he says, but I'm willing to do that for you to give you the solution if you just merely believe in me. I'm going to save you from this hell. So he even takes the penalty to free me. So when somebody says, I've heard what Jesus did. I know he died for my sins. I know what God expects, but I still don't want any of that. I just want my own thing. Then a loving God's like, man, I've done everything I can in my love for you. I've loved you in all these ways. I've sacrificed myself. I've given you an opportunity. You just don't want me. You don't want me. And so in death, you just don't want me either. Right, so I, I, you know, I'd say God has been very, very loving to the human race to give them an opportunity and give them a solution. Um, it's just that the human race makes a decision that says whether I want everything you've done in a loving way or I don't. Um, it, it's really weird too because we really expect of God things that we we would not not typically expect of ourselves toward other people. You know what I mean? I mean it's really weird. Like we put this thing on God's back to be the most gooey willy-nilly and, and and even to the point of saying god you shouldn't even hold anybody accountable for offense do any of us want to live in a world where nobody's held accountable for offense who wants that who who says i love getting wronged and never holding anybody accountable for it god's wronged by the human race all the time and we go well a really loving god wouldn't hold anybody accountable for that that would be unjust Right? So all of those things kind of play in, and that's where we go back to God is immensely loving because he created a solution. Now we're deciding if we love God enough to take him up on the offer. And a lot of times what the bottom line is we really don't love God, we just expect God to love us. And really what we don't, we're not really even looking for a loving God. I've said this before, we're looking for a tolerant God. Right? Because we don't want a relationship with the guy, we just don't want him to do anything to us negatively. Right? So that's where what God really offers is love. I can love you, you can love me, we can have a relationship. He's a loving God. He's not a tolerant God. When people say, why does a loving God send people to hell? What they mean is, why can't he just be tolerant? I don't want love. I just want tolerance. I want him to put up with me. I put up with him. It's all good. We don't have to really hang out. Um, God says, no, I'm only offering the hangout deal. That, that's love. That's the cross. That's the gospel. So that's why. Is it just me or is Matt doing a great job? All right, Matt, here's a softball for that. What's your favorite restaurant? Ooh. So many options. Uh, I, I, I'm not going to say Extapa. Extapa. Amen. Extapa uh, is like my most convenient restaurant. You know what I mean? Um, man, favorite restaurant. That's a tough call, man. I love Frankie's in Redmond. That's a good joint. Dig that. Um... Our family always goes to Cheesecake Factory because there's everything. Um, it dispels with all family arguments right there, you know. Uh, so that's really helpful. Um, so, you know, those are, those are some of my tops right there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You take gift cards, is that right? I take gift cards, that's right. <laughs> what you meant was, yeah, I like that. Nicely played, Scott Thompson. Thank you for that.
God、right. says that we're to love our enemies. Does that mean we should love Satan? No.、Um, <laughs> no. Human enemies. Human enemies. Which is why, like in Ephesians 6, that we went through a couple months ago,、uh, you know. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. People aren't our enemy. It doesn't matter who the human person is. They're really not our enemy. But he says there is an enemy that's different. And there is something about the commandment to love your enemies that are, it's truly、uh, people in this world, right? The enemies of this other parallel reality, no, no. Because there's, there's no room for,、um, for union or truce or, or reestablished relationship. Like the human race is. is、um, Detached from God, but they have an opportunity to be reconnected. And so, therefore, we、uh, love everybody around us. We are, are, we are not called, especially, we are not called to judge those who don't believe in Jesus. We are called to love those who believe in Jesus. We're called to have discretion with those who, who claim Christ, but those who don't claim Christ, we're supposed to love people, be warm to people who don't claim Christ.、Um, even if they're against us, we love them. If they're an enemy, we love them.、Uh, Satan, different category. There is no redemption for Satan, there's no redemption for demons, there's no opportunity for that civil. A war to be amended or fixed. So those are just enemy enemies that we don't love. We just realize that they're opposed to us. Why does Redemption Church support church planters specifically as missionaries? Aren't humanitarian and support efforts worthy of attention as well? Yeah, no, they are. We, we, one of the things we talk about with, with kind of our strategy any, any local church can only do so much. And so, what we try to do is we try to do certain things well. Instead of saying, how much can we fan out and be everybody's everything, we kind of choose a little bit more of a, all right, let's, let's focus on what we think we can do really, really well. The other part of that is, unlike a humanitarian missions organization,、uh, church planting organizations are a lot harder to sell, so to speak, as far as like, For a church planter to raise money to go to a foreign field, it's harder for them to raise money than it is for somebody to do something in the humanitarian bracket. The reason is, is because most people love the humanitarian bracket. They go, that's awesome. You're going to help orphans. You're going to help those in a war torn country. And、uh, people that don't believe and people that believe will, will give to that, get on board to that. They'll give a lot of support and resources to that. Versus somebody says, I'm going to plant a church and be there for the next 25 years. That's a whole lot harder to rally support for because it doesn't have as broad a base to raise funds from, right?、Um, again, if somebody's going to help in a medical mission,、um, They can talk to 50 friends at work and they'll be like, Yeah, we're going to help, again, an orphanage to get medical supplies. And everybody will chip into that. If they go to work and they say, We're going to go plant a church in Indonesia, a lot of people are like, Oh, well, good luck to you on that.、Um, and so that's why we choose church planting in part is because it does not receive as much financial grab. As the humanitarian thing. So, we're not saying the humanitarian is wrong, bad, we don't like it, don't love it. We just realize that this is a harder thing to get support behind, so we put more support behind it. That's one. Number two, we really do believe that the local church is the hope of the world, right? So, the local church should be the hub by which activity happens in a community.、Um, and so, to do humanitarian effort without a church has brought the love of Jesus without the body of Jesus. So, we believe in getting a body of Jesus there too,、uh, which is why we support the local planting aspect so aggressively.、Uh, now, if somebody says, hey, we wanna, I want to go on a short term trip or a long term trip and whatever, they have a different way of raising support through redemption, but it isn't budgeted support. The church planters are the budgeted support. People can raise money through redemption to do all kinds of other types of missions trips, but from the budget perspective, we only get behind the church planting aspect. And it doesn't have to be an exact church planter, it may be somebody facilitating church planting, a part of 
helping other church planters get on the field. has a lot of flexibility in there, but still centering a lot on seeing the local church established around the world. This is a long one, but I think it, uh, it's worthy. As Christians, we do not typically advocate or legislate for legislation prohibiting all sinful behaviors. Instead, we invite sinners into a relationship with Jesus who convicts them, leading to a change in their lifestyle. We don't advocate for legislation prohibiting fornication, adultery, or divorce, even though they are wrong. Why then do we passionately advocate against gay marriage? Habit. That's probably a good word. We do it out of habit a little bit. Um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to... I'm going to try to step out of the fact that you said gay marriage <laughs> like, and put it there for just a second. Um, we should have a general principle that the early church adopted, which was so good, I think. Um, I, I think about Paul in 1 Corinthians 5. So he, he's in Corinth. Corinth is like Washington State. I, I mean, Washington State, we're an interesting state. We've done something nobody's really ever done before. Um, and obviously, we've, we've legalized gay marriage. That's been done before. What we, we've done that nobody had really done before is we legalized uh, marijuana. Uh, the Netherlands decriminalized it. We legalized it, right? So we've, we've, we've gone to places in the world as a state that most places haven't gone. On top of that, we are the incoming port for some of the most sex-trafficking uh, activity in, in the United States. We bring in a large share of the sex trafficking around the world into Seattle. Um, so we have a lot of, um, again, just the sexual issues. We have a lot of drug issues. We have a lot. We're like Corinth, right? We're just like the city of Corinth. We're kind of a mess in Washington, uh, certainly in the greater Seattle area. That was Corinth. Now, Paul is an apostle in Corinth. He plants a church in Corinth. What does he tell the Corinthians to do with that world around them? He, he says, when I told you not to have anything to do with the sexual immoral and this and this and this and these different sins, he says, I meant those who claim Jesus and engage in those things. He goes, those are the ones you steer clear of. He goes, I wasn't talking about those who don't believe in Jesus, them being engaged in these different things. He goes, then you would have to go out of the world to do that. His whole point is, for those who don't claim Jesus and those who don't believe, our job is not to judge them. Our job is to love them. Our job is to reach them. Our job is to care about them. Our job is to invest into them. Our job is to begin friendships with them. Which is why, then I say, any legislation we try to enact as a Christian community to thwart the non-Christian community from their moral behaviors is kind of missing the boat. We should be building relationship. And a lot of times, because we take such a public platform on that legislation, it comes across as though we're judging them and not loving them. That, that becomes the problem. Now, I know some of you already are like, uh-oh, yeah, I see where he's going. Um, I'm not going anywhere except what is the most effective way to love those who we're trying to reach out to? Um, I, I've said this many times. Do you feel loved when the other side is against you? Do you feel like you want to sit down and build a relationship with them when they are against your Christian beliefs and principles? When you feel like your Christianity is being legislated away, do you feel like, man, I feel loved by those people? You don't. You feel attacked. You feel like they're the enemy. You feel like uh, it's your job is to, you feel vilified by them, so you want to vilify them in turn, that kind of thing. So I think especially for the church, it's important that we do whatever we can do to have a posture that says uh, we love the world around us in their mess because only Jesus can solve the mess. Only Jesus can solve the mess. Only the Holy Spirit can change the heart. Anything less than the Holy Spirit changing the heart is whitewashed tombs. 
right? It's just totally whitewashed hymns. Because let's go back to what the gospel is again. When people say, well, I'm good enough. God will take me because I'm good enough. Well, that's not the rule God uses. So if we made an entire society perfectly good, perfectly moral, perfectly upright, uh, nobody lied, nobody cheated, nobody stole, everybody was generous with their money, and it was a perfect utopian society, it's still going to hell because God doesn't use good as the standard. So we legislate to what end? we legislate to a standard of moral goodness we've accomplished nothing but made a morally good society which is great in this world but it has nothing for the life to come because nobody's saved by their goodness in fact in some ways i really believe that the more society decays the more opportunity there is for the church if we love the decaying world around us because sin has its own built-in consequence people get miserable under its weight They get miserable under its weight so if we're there to love and to share the good news of jesus um, the misery will come Because sin crushes under its own weight. The Roman Empire, it was a mess. It was a total mess. And the church had no legislative powers whatsoever. They just loved their people that needed Jesus. And it changed an entire empire. So I I always go back to the early church being the key to that. I do. Now, does that mean, well, then Christians shouldn't vote and everything else? That's not what I'm talking about. I, I don't... I don't have a problem with this voting. I don't have a problem with this in the process. I'm not advocating we're not in the process. In fact, I think we very much should be in the process. But where we should be in the process is we should be in there with a tone that unequivocally communicates the message, we love people. As soon as the world around us says, you don't love people, we've really lost our leverage. We've really lost our leverage. Um, and and, And that would be the critique. Most people will say Christians are intolerant and unloving. Now, I don't think they know as well. I think if they really came to church, they'd find out, oh, they're pretty normal. They're kind of like me in a lot of ways. They're not nearly as whatever. I think we get a real bad stereotype out in the community because inevitably what happens is some news source puts the craziest wingnut evangelical on the news who just rants and raves, and that sounds like that's all evangelicals, and that's not true. Um, But I think we need to be overtly loving the world around us, and we should be most known for that. As soon as we come across as hostile with an agenda that's outside of communicating the gospel, we're kind of just missing the big idea. The gospel is always the big idea. Always. Next. Nephilim. Nephilim? People are like, huh? <laughs> Nephilim. All right, so real quick Bible lesson. Uh, Genesis chapter 6. There are these things called Nephilim. I don't know what they are. Um, right? So uh, the, the, the theory goes in Genesis 6 that the sons of God procreated with the daughters of men and created the giants of old. The giants of old in the original Hebrew language are called the Nephilim. So people ask, are those like half human, half demonic people? Is that something else? I don't know. Um, could be. Uh, we really just don't know what that is. And so, uh, you know, people have different speculations as far as like, because that's just before the flooding of the earth where the world gets really, really wicked. So the theory is that demons and humans were procreating to create these half-breed creatures, and it was that that was the precursor to God destroying the world. Um, Could be. Matter of fact, we're going to do a series here starting, I think, in late February, early March on angels and demons and all that. We'll get into that a lot more in that series. So uh, that'll be pretty cool. But but for now, I can answer by saying I'm not fully sure what the Nephilim are, uh, if they're some kind of hybrid or other, but maybe we'll figure that out by March. Nice. All right. So um, I have time now to plan. All right. So, oh, I don't know. You tell me how we're doing on time. Oh, um. Eh, we can go maybe five, seven, forty-five more minutes, something like that. So, <laughs> it, it's a woman's world. Should our spiritual roles be updating as well? 
Should our spiritual roles be updating as well? Um, no, I don't, I don't think our spiritual roles should be updating. I think, you know, because part of it is even, even like that idea, we, you know, we, we exist in a culture. Um, you know, you, you have all these different global cultures, and then we had all, all of this human history behind us. I think there's some principles that are just fixed principles that transcend all languages, cultures, seasons, times, or whatever. Now, that doesn't mean that the way we interact with those are fixed. I mean, I think some things, there's like, there's like a principle, and then there's an application from a principle, right? So the principle is, I think, you know, not I think, the, from Old Testament to New Testament, all of that, the roles stay fixed. How those roles were then implemented, well, in any given time, season, or culture, those could be different from culture to culture, season to season. Sometimes, and I will say first as anybody, some of those environments were very oppressive, very oppressive, right? So I'm not advocating for that because what the roles are designed to do is to mutually serve one another. The roles are not designed to subjugate. The roles are designed to serve, all right? So, uh, you know, a center and a quarterback, right? They're designed to serve one another. The quarterback isn't against the center. The center isn't against the quarterback. The quarterback isn't trying to play the role of the center. The center isn't trying to play the role of the quarterback. Uh, it's fixed roles. Now, how they do that, shotgun, right up, doesn't, I mean, there's different ways to execute, right? That's kind of what I'm talking about. And sometimes in history, certainly men have been very oppressive of women, and that was never what Genesis prescribed. That's never what the Bible prescribes. I mean, this idea that the Bible prescribes the subjugation of women at times, I'm like, Paul's the guy that blew everybody's mind in 1 Corinthians 7 when he said, um, men, your body is not your own, but your wife's. And wives, your body's not your own, but it's your husband's. In other words, you serve one another. You don't compete, you serve, right? So, you know, the Bible is really clear about that, and that's how the role should function. Knife and fork, quarterback and center, whatever it is, you know, it's, it's serving one another, not competing, not subjugating, it's side by side, not aggressively over. Uh, now, in our culture, that can play out in all kinds of ways that were different than other cultures, but the roles are a fixed model throughout the Bible. They stay consistent. Um, and so, you know, again, application of roles, we have room for application. Managing and maintaining the roles, we want to keep that solid there uh, because they're the ones that God designed for greatest benefit, right? It's just maximizing benefit, even at that level, aside from just design, maximizes benefit. So... When is divorce okay? Um, that's a trick question. No, no, it's a trick question because in a certain sense, divorce is never okay. It's permissible and sad. Um, so maybe we'll say, when is it permissible? Uh, permissible when there's been infidelity and the relationship makes it permissible. Uh, permissible when, and that's like uh, Matthew uh, chapter 5, Matthew chapter 19. You get to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 abandonment and and this is it's very particular though it's when an unbelieving spouse abandons a believing spouse uh that is seen as a permissible so infidelity is a permissible abandonment's a permissible uh, uh other than that there's really not many permissions there uh, and then even in the permissions there is a sobriety about that um because um others will be affected and if you have kids, here's the guarantee. You'll move on, your kids don't. And if you tell yourself, well, kids are resilient, they'll get over it, you can keep believing that lie all you want. It's a lie. Your kids don't really ever get over it. They learn to adapt enough to deal with it, but they do not ever get over it. Um, or if you tell yourself, you know what, um, we fight so much, it would be better for the kids if we weren't together. 
um, that would just be better than they see us fighting all the time. I go, or, ready? You grow up and stop fighting in front of the kids. Which I know that sounds really kind of like, wow, Matt's mean today. Um, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. You, you can do it. Because you do it all the time. You actually do it in weird ways, right? I mean, Ellen and I have had this moment before where we'll have some disagreement. We'll be arguing in the kitchen. The phone's ringing. Ellen, I don't know what to do. I, I got to get the phone. I got to get the phone. Hello. Right? <laughs> right? You can totally do it. You can totally do it. Right? Uh, we're now talking about making decisions. And if we love our kids as much as we say we love our kids, you know what our kids need more than anything else is mom and dad that figure out how to get along even for their sake. They just need that. Um, you know, I mean, you know, I, I've shared before. I'm, I'm, I'm 42, rolling on 43. I still deal with the divorce of my parents that happened when I was seven and eight. I deal with it for holidays. I deal with it when decisions are made. I deal, it, you just deal with it. So it never goes away for the kids. And so with that, so I say it's a permission. It's not okay. Um, it's not, quote, encouraged, but it's mercifully allowed right, um, for those conditions. And so I want to keep in perspective. This is why God says in Malachi that he hates divorce. He hates it because he knows the damage that it does. It just has long-range damage. Um, and, and so, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that that means that somebody in the end, if they pursue it, they're ungodly or less godly, especially under the, the conditions we talked about, infidelity or, or abandonment. Um, I'm not saying, well, you're less godly if you decide to pull that trigger. You can be just as godly and pull that trigger. It's just realizing that there's always a consequence tethered to that decision. Uh, and if you can have reconciliation, that's always going to be better. Reconciliation always is better if you can get there. If you can't get there, God shows you a mercy in it. So I'm not, I'm not judging anybody in what I'm saying. I'm trying to give some just kind of sober perspective to it uh, more than anything else. So, and, you know, like I said, being the, the product of it, uh, an adult product that has a lot of mileage beyond it. I, I say it in part as, as a product of it. So I think that's where we want to keep it in perspective. So I think we do one more. One more. One more. Who do you consider the most tragic figure in the Bible? Who do I consider the most tragic figure? In the, man, there's a few. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, everybody's going to be like, Judas, of course. Um which he is tragic. Most people would be like, no, he's just a betrayer. He's a dirtbag. He got what he deserved. Um, no, I, I, yeah, I think Judas is one. I think Judas is one because here's a guy that, that sees Jesus clearly, but also has tethered expectations to God, which is something we human beings are good at. We like to tether expectations to God, and when God doesn't match our expecta- expectations, we get kind of mad at God. Right? That's a very normal human trait. Here's what Judas does. He has expectations tethered to the Messiah. Messiah doesn't fulfill the expectations he has. So he tries to get his fill out of life in another way. He takes his money, betrays his friend. And then after it's done, he throws all the money back at the feet of the religious leaders and in grief goes and hangs himself. That is a tragic story. That's a tragic story where in the end you neither got what your expectation was nor did you get your fill in life. You died in absolute grief and you just wanted to kill yourself. That is a very, very tragic story. I think... He's, he's probably among the most tragic figures. Um, I think for a godly guy that has a lot of tragedy, David, here's a guy that some of his kids kill his other kids, some of his kids rape his other kids, a lot of his kids didn't like him. He, had, he was a bad dad. David was a bad dad, right? Wrote good books, bad dad. He's a bad husband. Um, I think that's pretty tragic. I think Solomon Howell, all the wisdom of the world, and chose to still have 700 wives and 300 concubines. 
Imagine date night there, um, right? Like, gosh, I, I'm lucky to try to emotionally fill up one woman, um, you know? <laughs> I'll have 700 and 300 stripper girlfriends while I'm at it. So, um, yeah, so I, that's tragic when you're that wise, but that's stupid. Um, that's pretty tragic. Um, I would think Adam would be pretty tragic. Sheer sense of, oh, crap, what did I just do? I've done that, right? Oh, son of a gun, what did I just... That was stupid. I'm sure that was Adam's response. So I, I think there are a lot, you know, a lot. So I, I, and on, it's funny that that question got asked because um, I have a tendency to gravitate to those characters way more. Way more, you know what I mean? Like the catastrophic characters because that's what's cool about the Bible. Everybody's like, you know, especially people that are a little bit more leery of Christians or whatever. They're like, oh, they're a bunch of holy rollers and they all think they're perfect and they all think they have it together and everything else. And I actually don't know many Christians that are like that. I, I'm... I praise God I'm in a church where you guys aren't like that at all. I mean, I, we're all, right? Like, <laughs> yes, that was my best backhanded compliment of the day. Um, I love that you guys are jacked up and stupid. Um, and I am the Pied Piper. All right, so... Um, no, you know, imperfect people, perfect God. So I look at the Bible, I see all these imperfect people. I mean, this is why the gospel matters. The gospel isn't for people that have their life together. The gospel is for people who are screwed up. That's why I love the gospel. That's why I love the cross. That's why I love Jesus. Jesus doesn't say, clean yourself up, and then um, you can be in my club. He says, I want you in my club because you're not cleaned up. Right? I love that. And so all those characters in the Bible highlight that. They're all just messed up wing nuts, dipsticks, lug nuts. I mean, they're... There are that. And that's what I love about the church. That's what I love about the gospel. It's what I love about Jesus. So um, those characters really resonate with me a lot more. So, yeah. Anything else? That's it. That's it, people. Good questions, everybody. Good questions. You guys are brilliant. So thank you for giving me the time. I'm going to go ahead and pray right now with my football. Leather and leather, baby. The two most important leathers. All right. So. I'm going to go ahead and pray, and then uh, we're going to get ready for our offering with that too. So let's go and pray together. Jesus, I thank you so much for your grace. I thank you so much for the fact that um, you came into this world not to rescue the righteous, not to rescue the perfect, but to point out that none are righteous and none are perfect, and only you can make that happen. Only you can provide what we need. And so I pray that, uh, again, as uh, your people, we will have... Above all else, a humility, a generosity, a graciousness as we interact with our world. We, we know that sometimes our world looks at evangelical Christians and says, oh man, those guys are judgmental, they're intolerant, they're bigoted, they're whatever. I, I, like, I, I, I get the stereotype, but I also know your church, and I know your church far more often than not is, is people that are struggling and striving and trying and, and longing for humility and longing uh, to, to, to be what you have called us to be and doing it with generosity. So I, I, I pray that we will continue to exhibit that. I thank you for redemption, which again, just so gets that already. I mean, I just thank you for the people that take you very seriously, but we don't take ourselves that seriously, but we take you really seriously. And so we just thank you for that as well. And so even now, as we get ready for our offering, which is another opportunity for us to say, you know what, this world doesn't own us. We, we give to the world to come. We give to the mission of Jesus. We give because it is worship and joy. Um, I pray that we would do that with true um, 
just joyful hearts, right? Glad to give because you've given to us so much. And so we thank you and we praise you, Jesus, in your awesome name. Amen.